G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks. Welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. It looks like this will be our third and final episode on Lamech. I feel some vengeance coming on. That's right, Chris. This week we're all about Lamech's vengeance and how he capitalises on Cain's reputation as a murderer. But there's a lot more going on in this part of the story of Lamech. What do you mean? How much could you possibly find in this little piece of text? Uh, actually, forget I asked because I'm a bit worried that I might get the answer that I'm afraid of and I don't want to spend the next two months crawling through these verses word by word. Well, you can relax because I don't plan to get that granular in my examination of this passage, although I really could if I wanted to. But I'll tell you about some of the things that we're going to explore today. We have a weird rabbinic tradition about Lamech being blind and killing Cain by mistake. We have an unusual literary device being employed by the author, which actually comes up not only with Lemek here in Genesis 4, but also again with the other Lemek in Genesis 5. We have a song which is constructed using ancient poetry. We're going to see that in both Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, Lemek is a person who unusually gets to say things and who has a special place in the two different genealogies. And we have some biblical numerology. Oh, is that all? Not very much at all then. Kidding! That's actually quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, all right. So we've got to get into it. And as is our custom, we will begin with reading the text. It's what the people want. Indeed. And such is our want. This is Genesis 4, verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Silla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Okay, so there are a lot of things to talk about in this passage, and for the first time in a while, we don't have any new names to unpack. So that's good, because we can just focus on the narrative, or in this case, it's a song. And that's unusual, because it's the first time in four chapters of Scripture that we have a person communicating through song. I might point out that some people view the Genesis 1 creation story as a song, though. On this occasion, in Genesis 4, you have some clear indication in the text that it's intended to be understood poetically, and there's a very clear structure that indicates that this kind of reading is warranted. One of the most obvious indicators that we're dealing with a song here is that our protagonist refers to himself in the third person. But the most obvious would be the familiar literary structure of the repetition of ideas in the form of parallel pairs in the terminology. We start with the repetition of the idea that the women should listen to what is being said. The next repetition is concerning what's been done to the man who hurt Lamech. And the final repetition, which also serves as an intensification, is the mention of vengeance to be taken out on offenders. So we have a fairly good idea that the song of Lamech is intended to be understood as literature. But the next question we have to ask is why we have a story presented in song, and that might be a little harder to unpack. Surely the author could have simply given us a narration of what occurred. But we have the preservation of these lyrics, which gives something of an emotional power to the story. However, there are some issues with regard to possible readings of this text that we have to address before we can be certain about the intent behind the song. I mentioned earlier that we were going to talk about a Jewish tradition, which in some circles was circulated in the church as well, and remains popular to this day. And I don't know if you've heard of this before, but there's a common notion that this song indicates that Lamech must have been blind. And we'll talk about how we arrive at that conclusion, or I should say how some interpreters have arrived at that conclusion, which comes from a different way of analysing the text. 
that makes this a part of the reception history of this text, and that's why we'll attempt to take it seriously and dive into the rationale behind this interpretation. So there is the possibility that this could be read as a question where Lamech is asking his wives, have I killed a man to my wounding, or in other words, to my detriment, and a young man to my harm? And if that reading is preferred, then it raises the question of why Lamech had to ask the question. Is there something he doesn't know or cannot ascertain? He seems to have some awareness of something, and yet he needs clarification. So something's going on there where he, he seems to be expressing some kind of sign of remorse at the situation. Apparently, he's done something terrible, which impacts negatively on himself, hence the idea of his own wounding or injury or detriment. If we take that reading, what follows concerning the vengeance of Cain and the vengeance of Lemek is to be read as vengeance visited upon those characters rather than administered by them. So, retracing our steps a little bit, we have this unusual story, which arose from rabbinic traditions, and the great thing about the rabbis is that when they don't have information in the text, well, they just bung it in there, and naturally they suggested that since Lemek appears not to know what he's done, then he must have been unable to see. I mentioned this is a popular story, which is really widespread across a variety of traditions, and that means that there are variations of this story all over the place. So in some instances, Lemek was born blind, and in others, he's blind because he's old. And there's another variation, which I'll mention later. The next problem presented by the text is, what's a blind man doing going around accidentally killing people? How is this happening? And the rabbis are like, well, people die all the time in hunting accidents, so he must have been out hunting. And that's how he's accidentally killed someone. But that's ridiculous. Why would a blind man be out hunting? And you might think, that's ridiculous. Why would a blind man be out hunting? And yes, it is ridiculous, but you've got to prop the story up somehow. I did say that we were going to attempt to take this seriously. So this ridiculous proposal is that Lemek doesn't go out hunting on his own because he's blind. So he takes a guide with him, a young man who helps him to use his bow and arrow. So the young man tells Lemek where to shoot. And Lemek's a really good shot. And in this way, they succeed in hunting. And on this particular occasion, they go out to hunt. The young man leading the blind Lemek with bow and arrow. And the young man spots something in the bush at some distance and tells Lemek to take aim and fire at this beast. But when they arrive at the scene, Lemek is mortified to discover that he has shot his own forefather, Cain, and killed him. Wait a minute, I thought we were finished with Cain. Why is he in this story? And, well, you might think, wait a minute, I thought we were finished with Cain. Why is he in this story? The answer to that lies in the association with the Hebrew word for man here, when Lemek says, I have killed a man. The word there is the Hebrew ish, which has only occurred one time in the text so far and was in the passage where Eve anticipates the birth of Cain and later names him. And the rabbis really like this idea because it gives some closure to the story. Because as you know, without this particular reading of the text, we don't have Cain's death. So the use of the same terminology from the start there seems quite fitting. And it means that the punishment of Cain has finally come to rest upon him. And that is the interpretation of vengeance in this story. Now, Lamech is grief stricken. And according to the rabbis, when he realizes what he's done, he suddenly claps his hands together in grief and anguish, not realizing that his son, Tubal Cain, his hunting guide, is standing right there in front of him. And Lemek has inadvertently crushed his head and killed him. So Lemek, having accidentally dispatched his ancestor, has now also killed his son, which was given as the explanation for the intensification of the vengeance upon Lemek. Remember that we talked about this vengeance as being visited upon Lemek, as opposed to something that he dishes out to his enemies. 
So that explains the line where Lamech says, I have killed a man and a young man. In this reading, those are two separate figures. Mm, I think that's about enough weirdness for one episode. Surely it can't get any weirder, right? Well, according to this reading, yeah, you, you might think that all this is weird enough, but it gets even weirder because you should be thinking, how did anyone mistake Cain for some kind of animal and shoot him? Yeah, Tim, how did anyone mistake Cain for some kind of animal and shoot him? There must be an echo in here. And the explanation goes that Tubal Cain, who is Lemek's hunting guide, is looking through the bushes and sees this black hairy beast with horns on its head. And he tells Lemek to shoot it, believing that it's some kind of game animal. That raises the obvious question of why would Cain appear to be black and hairy with horns on his head? And the answer to that goes back to what we were saying several episodes ago about the mark of Cain. Because what we have here is something of a composite of different theories. And if you think about what that mark could have been, if the mark of Cain is interpreted as some kind of visual distinction that made Cain look different to other people for the purpose of making him stand out so that people could understand that he was under the protection of God, then the question is, what kind of mark? And I mentioned in that episode a whole bunch of alternatives that have all been thrown into the mix here in this story. The dark skin, the hairy appearance, the horns on his head, which presents an image of someone that could be mistaken for a game animal and inadvertently shot dead. So this is a really fascinating story, even if it is incredibly far-fetched and based on some fairly primitive exegesis. But that's the way that things were done in certain circles in late antiquity and the medieval period in particular. Makes for some interesting reading, but I'm not sure that we can put too much weight on that interpretation. And I'm going to go even further here and introduce another spin on this tradition. The conflict of Adam and Eve with Satan, also known as the Book of Adam and Eve, is a 6th century Christian extra-canonical book uh, found in the Ge'ez, uh, that's Ethiopian language, translated from an Arabic original. It's not canonical anywhere. In that story, there is an interesting twist on this tradition in which Lamech kills Cain by putting out his eyes after having shot him with an arrow, and that is achieved by means of the use of a slingshot. All right, so the idea is he shoots first with the arrow, and then to finish off his quarry, he picks up a sling and fires a stone at this beast in the bushes. Again, this is an example of poetic justice here. The stone is used because, according to the same tradition, it was a stone that was used to kill Abel although that, that might have been more of a Lord of the Flies kind of stone, if you know what I mean. The statement that Lemek makes is interpreted as having killed a man by means of my own wound, or in other words, I've done to him the same thing that previously happened to me that made me blind in the first place. Not only that, but it gets Lemek off the hook as otherwise suspected of intentional manslaughter because he's appealing to his own lack of sight. And it means that Cain dies poetically by the same means that he killed his brother according to that same tradition. But if you've been following this podcast for a while now, you'll know that there are several issues with this reading of the text. The most obvious one being the fact that just because Scripture uses the term ish first of Cain, that doesn't necessarily mean that subsequent occurrences of the term must be referring to Cain as well. Yeah, exactly. What are they going to do the next time that word comes up and Cain's already dead? Are they going to make him out to be a, a zombie or something just so they can keep him in the story? <laughs> The second issue is that only in the world of rabbinic speculation do we have these scenarios where every unnamed person mentioned in the text has to be somebody previously mentioned by name, just so we can say who it was instead of having to admit that we don't know who it was. Lemek kills some guy. We don't need to know who it was. That's why we're not told. Third, 
the need for what I'm going to call gratuitous closure leads to some pretty wild innovations outside of the text. Lemek is blind. Lemek is a hunter. Lemek hunts despite being blind. Lemek is good at hunting despite being blind. Lemek encounters his ancestor Cain, of which he is a fifth generation descendant, alive and well, before shooting him, that is. Cain is mistaken by Lemek's guy in Chibwal Cain, who can see for an animal on account of his mark, displaying an ignorance of the fact that Cain's mark is stated by Yahweh in the text. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Cain's death occurs in the narrative for no other reason than this apparent need for closure. Similarly, Tiaval Cain's death is invented to close Lemek's legacy and remove the legacy of Cain while solving an apparent difficulty in the text created only by ignorance of Hebrew parallelism in the poetic form that requires the man-slash-young-man phrasing, which is the only reason Tiaval Cain appears in this story anyway, besides the necessity of Lemek being both blind and a hunter at the same time. And Cain's not only shot with an arrow, but also a slingshot. Just because the rabbis want to see Cain killed by a stone, uh, A, because they think Cain killed Abel with a stone, that's not in the text, B, because David killed Goliath with a stone, reading that historically backward into the text in order to further assassinate Cain's already bad character, and C, it solves the ambiguity created by reading Lemek's phrase, for my wounding, as by means of the same wounding I previously suffered, which is an unnecessarily complex reading of the text. It's like they added 10 times more stuff than what was in the original story. Yeah, and there are more issues. Lemek, as we've already seen, is an invented name that comes at the end of an invented genealogy. His family is nothing more than a damning litany of examples of the depravity of Mesopotamian civilization. Even if there was actually a historical figure named Lemek, we wouldn't have an actual genealogy that traces back to Cain anyway. That's not how this text is meant to be interpreted. But I think we should leave this now and move on to something else about Lemek that's really fascinating. It's an observation about his name, and it has a really strange connection to the Hebrew alphabet, or should I say the alphabet. You might know that the word alphabet comes from the first two letters of the alphabet, since we're borrowing a Greek term here, we're talking about the Greek alphabet. And that's where we get our English word alphabet. But in Hebrew, the first two letters are aleph and bet, so they don't say alphabet, they say aleph bet. Archaeologically speaking, we have made discoveries of the Hebrew alphabet written out for the purpose of teaching the alphabet, just like what we do today, teach kids how to read. You know, when you walk into a kindergarten classroom, you find the alphabet written on the wall, just like that. Traditionally, the way that it was done by Jews was to write it out in two separate lines. The top line will have the first half of the alphabet, and the bottom line will have the second half. That's actually uh, quite interesting. But didn't you say this was supposed to be about Lamech? Yeah, I'm getting there. This is just another one of those weird little rabbit trails that we have to take. It's going to pay off, trust me. So those lists of alphabetical letters in order are called abecedaries. I'm not joking. That's actually a real thing. And as you follow the alphabet in Hebrew, when you get to the middle, you find the same three consonants that comprise the name of Lemek. Except that, as I've mentioned before about Lemek, those consonants are not in the correct order to spell his name. And I mentioned before the idea of chaos created by the mixture of those consonants, which otherwise would spell the Hebrew word for king, which is melech. So what we have right in the middle of the alphabet is this kind of hinge between the top line and the bottom line, the first half and the second half, which features those letters required to spell the name of Lemek. And that puts Lemek in an interesting position. His name occurs at a transition point between these two halves of the story. So when you put yourself in the position of somebody who's grown up learning Hebrew as their first language, 
and obviously they're intimately familiar with their own alphabet. This means that when you see the word Lemak occur in the text, it's kind of ingrained into you that this marks a transition point from one part of the story into the next, and that top line of the alphabet into the bottom. And that's exactly what happens in Genesis 4. Not only that, it happens again when we encounter another Lemak in Genesis 5. In both situations, we have a scenario where a previously bad situation is about to turn around for good, and Lemak marks that turning point in the narrative in both of those stories. So we're going to see this again next season when we study Genesis 5. So what all this means is that the name of Lemek serves as a literary device to mark the turning point of a story, which gives us some hope that things are about to turn around for good. That's awesome. And who would ever have thought to look for that by reading an English Bible? Yeah, you, you just wouldn't. I mean, until I researched this myself, I never heard of it. And, and that's why I make a point of talking about cultural context and stuff like that, because unless you're immersed in the worldview and the culture, you just don't see these things. We're talking about stuff that you learn as a little kid growing up and learning the alphabet. It's that deeply entrenched, and that's how Hebrew works. Everything's connected with these subtle nuances that we just don't get in translation. But sometimes these things can't be conveyed in subtleties, and that's why every so often you need to have your characters in your story drive the narrative by the things that they say. And that's another example of where Lemek fits in the narrative, both in the case of Genesis 4 and in Genesis 5, where to drive the story, he needs to say something that makes sense out of what's come before or what's going to come next. It's basically expository dialogue or info dumping. If Lemek doesn't say his piece, then we don't know what happened because it's not explained in the plot. So we've seen now the story of Lemek, the wordplay that gives meaning to his name and the way that communicates part of a larger narrative concerning not only Babylonian civilization, but the decline of Israelite culture preceding the exile. And after some work to get the story straight and pick apart all these weird traditions that have sprung up around him, we can also see the function of Lemek as a character at the turning point of this story of chaos and decline and decay. But before we hit that turning point, which is going to come in the final verses of Genesis 4, we need to come back to that question that we asked back at the start, which is, how are we supposed to understand the song of Lemek? Because as I said before, we can really only arrive at the author's intent for including this passage in scripture if we understand what it's communicating to us. Basically, let's get the story straight and then we can talk about why it's there. And fortunately for us, our English Bibles actually do us a favor for a change and present a pretty good reading of the text, which keeps things fairly easy to understand. Well, I've got to say, that's a relief. I was beginning to think that uh, we would never find a point where you can just read your English translation and actually get the point as the author intended. Yeah. So let's retrace our steps and remember what we've already learned throughout Genesis 4 that might be relevant to our understanding of Lemek's song. This story that begins with Cain is going to end with Lemek. In the story of Cain, the mark of Cain is explained in the text as a statement that God pronounces, which is something that becomes a commonly known saying in the culture. And that saying goes along the lines of, he who kills Cain shall suffer sevenfold vengeance. So it's nothing to do with Cain's appearance, making him look like an animal or anything like that. That expression is taken from the fact that Cain's response to his humiliation by the righteousness of Abel was murder. So the original offence is far exceeded by the retribution, and we had the number seven in play because this statement is made in connection with divine beings in a ritual context. And it also happens to display the disproportionate nature of the retribution compared to the offence. And we've been talking at some length throughout this season of the podcast 
about how this chapter of Genesis outlines a gradual decay of human civilization from that point of origin and descending into chaos, which is what Lamech himself has come to personify. So we've witnessed a dramatic increase in the depravity of humankind in general, in a way that allows us to view the immediate context of the Judahites in Babylon as the backdrop for a closer examination of Israel's own history, and yet is told in such a way as to hold every listener accountable for the words of this text on a personal level. And it's with this increased depravity, sexual immorality and violence in mind that we read the intensification of vengeance at the hands of Lamech. Hence his saying in verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Cast against the backdrop of the mark of Cain as an expression of disproportionate vengeance, we understand this statement of Lamech to be referring back to those words and intensifying them. Just as in the situation with Cain, where we saw that the vengeance was to be enacted on somebody who might kill Cain or one of his family. In the case of Lemek, the application remains consistent. This is not the consequences of actions coming back on himself. It's a declaration of vengeance promised against any potential enemies that may attack Lemek in the future. So this is 11 times more vengeance than Cain's. Like if Cain was Batman, Lemek is like 11 uh, bat men? <laughs> it does look like there's some math going on there, but probably not in the way people think. I'm going to read you one of the footnotes from my book, Answers to Giant Questions, which gives a little perspective taking biblical numerology into account. As a bit of context for the footnote, this is with regard to what Jesus tells Peter when Peter asks how many times he should forgive his brother. So Matthew 18 verses 21 to 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus tells Peter 77 times in response to Peter's suggestion of seven times. Here's the footnote. Some versions mistranslate 70 times seven. A quick lesson in number meanings. Seven is the number of God showing divine perfection or completeness. Ten is the number of human perfection or completeness. Seventy, that is ten times seven, corresponds to the sons of God who have authority over humanity. Therefore, seventy-seven or seventy plus seven is the totality of the divine realm with God and all the angels expressed in a numeric form. When Lamech says he will be avenged 77 times, he assumes that the entire host of heaven will avenge him. Additionally, these numbers, by virtue of their allusions to perfection, imply an everlasting state. And that's the end of the quote. So we've got this idea that Lamech seems to think that the entire divine council will avenge him for eternity if anyone should happen to threaten him. It's kind of mathematical, but really the basis for this number is symbolic rather than calculated. And Lamech feels justified in invoking the wrath of the divine council because he's made this deal that we talked about on the last episode of the podcast where the sons of God provide benefits for his family in exchange for Lamech providing them with human wives. So Lamech figures that he has some kind of divine protection. Just on that 70 times 7 thing, which is found in a frustrating majority of English translations of Matthew 18, that's basically just a misreading of the short form of the Greek way of writing the phrase 77 times. Written out in full, it would translate in English to something like 70 times and seven times. You don't always get the and included there. In fact, 
out of all of the early New Testament manuscripts that we have for this passage, there's only one that preserves the deviant reading 70 times a seven, and it's considered one of the least reliable manuscripts that we have. As an example of how this works in English, on a hot day, if you're an American, you might say it's 120 degrees outside. Nobody requires you to use the word and between the 100 and the 20. Of course, I'm in Australia, and we do require the full form. Nobody talks like that here. So the difference between an American reading that in the text and an Australian reading that in the text is going to be that the American will see 77 times and the Australian will see 70 times seven times. And that's just based on the way we interpret the grammar. There are actually lots of examples of this kind of grammar in the Bible. And a survey of those reveals that in almost every situation, the correct reading assumes informal grammar for the construction of the phrase, like what we have with 77 times. As an example, when the Apostle Paul says that five times he received the 40 lashes minus one, that doesn't mean that on one occasion he received 195 lashes. But anyway, since we talked about this passage in Matthew and the words of Jesus, let's have a look at it. Peter's talking to Jesus about forgiveness, and when you think about it, forgiveness is the opposite of vengeance. So it makes sense for Jesus to contrast the unlimited vengeance of the descendant of Cain against the unlimited forgiveness that God offers and expects from those who follow him. I mentioned in a recent episode that the author of First Enoch was using the text of Genesis 4 and the story of Lamech's children to bolster his interpretation and expansion of Genesis 6 and the myth of the Watchers. Now we're seeing Jesus use that same story to reverse the effects of that sin. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really what Matthew was getting at through his whole gospel. He aims to show his Jewish audience how Jesus is reversing the effects of all this bad stuff that happens in the primeval history. But you have to know what you're looking for. And in this case, your English translation probably wasn't much help unless it was one of the select few that get this right. Anyway, I think we've covered enough ground for this episode. So hopefully this has been an interesting, worthwhile look into the biblical lemmach of Genesis 4. It's certainly been interesting. I'll give you that. Uh, there's never a dull moment when you dive into the scriptures, Tim. Uh, let's turn to some Q&A now before we wrap it up for this week. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. Love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Sky Harris asked in the Divine Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook. Thank you for your question, Sky. So I was thinking about how the Nephilim survived the flood. Then I started thinking about the Apkalu and how Michael Heiser said this in the context for the uh, Nephilim. So I looked up the Apkalu and I was reading that some of them were described to be part fish. So I had a thought and wonder if it had any value. Could it be that a possible reason the Nephilim survived the flood is that they had fish-like features? It would make sense that they could survive a flood if they were part fish, right? Well, that's a really interesting question, Sky, and I'm glad you asked because this is a question that comes up every now and then. So we need to start with some clarification of terms. The Apkalu were the guys who are to be equated with the sons of God in Genesis 6. They were the ones who brought forth giant offspring in conjunction with human women. The offspring were the Nephilim. Right, so the Apkalu is the, the terminology used by the Babylonians in their mythology. Now, we don't have any iconography or depictions of the Apkalu that predate the flood. Uh, but as you pointed out in your question, Sky, the late evidence for the Apkalu does indeed depict them as having these fish-like attributes. 
So the question to ask is why these entities are described in this way. Let's start with the first aspect of this fish-like description, and that is to talk about the place where they come from. The Alkali were said to be divine beings. After they revealed the secrets of divine life or civilization to mankind, they were punished by being sent to the Apsu, or to use the Greek term, the Abyss. The Hebrew terminology for this place would be Tehom, or the Great Deep. According to the biblical flood account, this is where some of the waters for the flood come from. The Apsu is a watery place, and one reason that the Apkalu are described like fish is because fish live in water. So that should be fairly self-explanatory, keeping in mind that we're talking about a realm of the divine and not a real place underground with real water in it. I talked a lot about this kind of cosmology and how we should understand it in the first season of this podcast. The reason that it's described as water is because that's not a place where human beings can live. Yeah, I do remember we talked about that in some detail back in season one. Another reason for the depiction of these entities as fish-like creatures is because fish don't have eyelids. That sounds pretty weird, but you have to remember that these divine beings were entrusted with the task of monitoring the affairs of man on the earth. They were required to be vigilant, so they never close their eyes, just like fish. This is reflected in the Hebrew terminology that refers to them as watchers. Another reason why the Apkalu were depicted as fish-like is because it became known that they did, in fact, survive the flood. And one aspect in which the biblical flood account agrees with the Mesopotamian is to do with the wiping out of everything that stood on the face of the earth. So how can a creature survive a watery apocalypse? The answer is by swimming. The only creatures that would survive a deluge are spirits and fish. So why don't we have both? The fish-like appearance is to signify the idea of survival in water. However, it's clear from the original context in which these beings are depicted as spiritual beings from the heavens, that they are in fact spirits and not fish-like creatures. The fish imagery is symbolic for all the reasons that I laid out just now and more. Having clarified that the sons of God or Akalu were spiritual entities who were represented as fish-like beings in order to describe the place where they live, and the function that they had, we should be able to move past the idea of some kind of physical appearance that had anything to do with fish. Those depictions that we see in carved reliefs are iconographic in nature, and as such, they represent the properties and functions of these entities by means of symbolic imagery that don't really look like fish. Okay, but Sky was really asked about their Nephilim, so what about them, huh? Huh? All right, well, moving on to the Nephilim, we should be able to make the logical next step is saying that if the parents of the giants didn't actually have the physical attributes of the fish, then we're not going to see that in the children either. I realise that it kind of sounds like a cool way to answer the question of how there were giants after the flood, but there are other ways to explain that. Uh, my book considers four different possibilities or groups of ideas on that very subject. You might want to check it out. So in order to wrap this one up, all we need to keep in mind is that the imagery used to portray these beings is designed to reflect their attributes and their function rather than any real physical appearance. And there are several good reasons for that which are explained adequately in the source materials. There are some pretty good resources available online that will help you understand these ideas and there are translations of the original source text that you can read. And I say that because I just want to remind my listeners that I don't just make this stuff up. I'm relying on people who are subject matter experts who are good enough to publish their work for the rest of us to discover. So hopefully that answers your question, Sky. Thanks for sending it in. And I just want to encourage all our listeners, if you have a question, 
you would like answered on the show, please don't hesitate to send it in via the website, giantanswers.com, or just track me down in one of the Facebook groups. Yeah, please do. All right. Well, we'd better wrap it up there. That's all we have time for today. We'll be back next week as we begin the epic conclusion to Genesis 4 and Season 4 too of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekforsaken.com, giantanswers.com. Read the blog and have us on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Rant Club Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. You may ask yourself, make some noise. I always remember um, mortification concerts and uh, Steve Rowe would uh, oh, yes. try and sort of rile the crowd up by yelling, You want to hear some noise? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that a few times. Who wants to hear some metal? (laughs) Who wants to hear some Jesus Christ metal? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Do you uh, do you miss those days? Ah, well, I look back fondly. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm sure if I tried uh, moshing and headbanging the way I used to, I'd probably be back in the hospital again. (laughs) <laughs> weren't you guy weren't you the guy in the skate park yeah yeah do you know it? how old you are just give it up man just acknowledge like you know 40 plus that's it you, you cut it off uh, oh dear no more of these juvenile activities well you look at you're giving your wife and kids an opportunity to serve developing yeah. their character yeah that's that's right. They should be thanking you. They should. Yeah, now that you mention it. Why don't they? <laughs> yeah, I think, I'll, I think I'll tell them that you said that. Yeah, I really did a, did a, uh, a fair job on my arm. I really can't do much with it. Like um, um, I, was, I was sitting at the table to have dinner and I couldn't even use the pepper grinder. <laughs> I'm just going to say that again because someone was making noises. We have a song which is constructed using ancient poetry. We're going to see that both... In both, let me try this again.